Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. It's The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. If my voice sounds like a reasonable facsimile of same, of the usual, then I'm pleased because I'm going to struggle with the, uh, with the allergies at this time, so... Do the best we can and hang in as much as possible. Beginning is Grand Chief Stuart Phillip. He's the president of the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs. Joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Chief Phillip, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, condolences to you and everyone in the indigenous community in this country for this terrible reality that was discovered in, in Kamloops. Good afternoon. And as horrific as the discovery of the remains of 215 Indigenous children is to Canadians, I'm suspecting that this came as no surprise to you. It surprised a lot of people, but I doubt it surprised many in the Indigenous community. Would that be correct? Yes, uh, you're absolutely correct. And unfortunately, um, the Indigenous people of this country who were victims of the Indian residential school system were aware that there were um, uh, multitudes of uh, Indian residential school uh, students who were children that were unaccounted for. And um, during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings, the uh, residential school survivors shared those stories with the Canadian public However, the racist attitudes in this country are such that those, you know, heart-wrenching disclosures were simply dismissed as exaggerations and embellishments and so on and so forth. But now we have absolute uh, concrete proof that, that those stories were true. What are you calling on Canadians and, and Canada to do, Chief Phillip? What, what really needs to be done to stop the, uh, the uh, reluctance to, to speak about this and, and accept it? You say that it's, it's something that's been, metaphorically, I guess, swept under the rug and people turn their backs on, on the situation once the story fades from the uh, immediate consciousness. What has to happen? Well, the short answer is um, the um, Canadian public needs to own its own history. They need to um, to own the um, fact that this country, the history of this country, is is deeply steeped in racist notions. That the first peoples, the indigenous peoples of this country, are are worthless, of no value, and and those attitudes um, existed from the time of Sir John A. MacDonald. So many decades, many governments, federal... Hundreds of years. I'm sorry? Hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, So many decades, many governments, more than a century, we have federal and provincial governments. Many individual leaders at different times of Canada's history supported residential schools. And they were public policy. Uh, what are your thoughts, if we're talking about historic responsibility, and you mentioned Sir John A. Macdonald, 
What is your thinking on uh, Sir John A. Macdonald and Egerton Ryerson and others and the call by many for statues across Canada to be removed and schools and official buildings named after these individuals to be renamed? Where do you stand on that? I absolutely support that. Um, The uh, Sir John A. Macdonald and successive governments have uh, promoted the, uh, you know, the, the genocidal residential school system. And, um, you know, I think of Lynn Bayak, uh, who was uh, part of the Canadian Senate, who uh, consistently stated that the residential schools were good for us. And uh, she got censured many times and booted out of the Senate. But she had enormous support across this country, and the racist attitudes still prevail. And the single most essential thing that Canadians can do is uh, seek to eradicate the ugly racist notions that people of color, that black people, indigenous people, are open targets for the most hateful racist uh, attacks, uh, physical attacks, uh, criminal attacks, and they do it without murders of missing and indigenous women and girls. They do it with complete impunity. It happens in the school systems, it happens in the medical system and in the justice system. How would you say, Chief Philip, the historic um, reality of John A. Macdonald should be recorded, taught, understood in Canada? Because he was the country's first prime minister, and he did create the national, the impetus for the National Railroad. How should he fit into the historical narrative of Canada? I think that um, you hear the expression, truth before reconciliation. I think the historical truth of this country needs to be um, taught in in every level of the education system. Uh, Sir John A. Macdonald was incredibly racist. His vision of Canada from the beginning was to create a country for non um, Uh, for white people. That was his vision. And he uh, designed the residential school system. Uh, Canada was the birthplace for apartheid in South Africa. Uh, There were officials from South Africa that came to Canada, met with um, uh, MacDonald and his government, and consequently the South African delegation went home and established apartheid. Uh, this country did push back against South African apartheid, of course, with uh, Mr. Mulroney bringing President Mandela to Canada, and uh, he was in our parliament, and that was a really significant moment. I believe he was an on- made an honorary citizen of Canada. So is there, would you recommend that a true summit of leaders in Canada, political First Nations um, take place, or would you would you think that that would be a wasted exercise at this time, and including the, and including the Catholic Church? 
Well, we did that through the Tourism Reconciliation Commission. Yeah. And that was an exercise that allowed the residential school survivors to share their stories with the Canadian public, with government officials, with the church, and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, it, it, uh, the terms of reference did not allow for um, findings of wrongdoing. Is it and necess- that's where it failed. Is it necessary for the Pope to issue an apology? Mr. Trudeau has said that when he visited Pope Francis, he called on the, uh, the Pope to uh, issue an apology on behalf of the Church, and the Pope apparently today has met with the two Canadian cardinals. What would you want to hear from, from Pope Francis, from the Pope of the Catholic Church? Well, um, quite frankly, we're sick and tired of uh, theatrical... Uh, politically theatrical apologies that are absolutely meaningless. We need a seismic change in Canadian society that uh, seeks to completely eradicate the, the the ugly racism that is inherent and very much a part of Canadian society's values that that is hurtful, that uh, racism kills, quite frankly, and we need to apply all of our energies to stand up to the racist uh, individuals in this country, the extremists, and and you know aggressively push back in a in a very public way push back these you know these horrible racist notions that people carry. One more question for you, Chief Philip. Do you have hope? I have fifteen grandchildren. And my wife, Joan, and I have dedicated our lives to seek justice for Indigenous people by exposing our racist history. And my wife and I have been thrown in jail on numerous occasions for our political actions in defending the land and the environment and the human rights. Uh, we went to Standing Rock. Um, you know, it's, an, it's a... Very, very long drive. Our marriage survived, and uh, we shall continue doing that work until we're no longer here. When you lost all sight and your grip starts to slip, take my hand and let's fight, just hold tight. Life will try and take your breath away from our world I'm here, you're not alone, just hold on You showed us how strong you are by keeping your faith oh, Adrian Sutherland in Midnight Shine and Survivor. Adrian uh, Sutherland is from Attawapiskat, born and raised in the community. He's the leader of the First Nations National Award-winning band Midnight Shine. He's been on this program with us several times over the last number of years and spoken about life in Attawapiskat and what it's like to uh, to try to survive in a community where, well, the, the basic necessities of life, like running water, proper running water realities, are, are almost impossible to to uh, to accomplish, 
Adrian, thank you for, for coming back on the show. I thought of you right away as soon as I saw that, uh, the initial story that came out about the remains of 215 children being found near the residential school near Kamloops. I immediately thought of you and what do you think you've told us on this program before. So may I just start, first of all, by saying thanks for coming on today. And what was the impact on you personally on when you first heard about this? Well, Roy, it's my pleasure to be back again. Uh, you know, when I first heard the news, I was actually leaving, um, uh, out, going out to the bush uh, on a, on a one-week um, trip with some family. And, uh, I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was just, I didn't even have time to process what I was reading. And uh, I was in shock um, in some ways. I knew these stories were true. I know people in my own life that have seen um, other children disappear and be murdered and were told that if they were to speak speak of what they saw that then they themselves would be would be killed you know this is this is uh something um uh some of the stories that i've heard in my own in in my own uh communities here in, in james bay so uh, it is shocking though to finally <clears throat> i guess see the truth and and the truth the truth came out um when that story uh, hit a lot of people in this country and uh, there's no denying these stories that we've been hearing all this time now um, and, and the rest of the week out on the land it just it was in on my mind the entire time I think uh, thinking about those families and thinking about those children uh, having children of my own grandchildren of my own and thinking of my grandparents and my and my mom and all my family that uh that spent time in the residential schools, uh, especially my grandparents, um, having to, you know, let their children go to school, uh, St. Anne's specifically here in, in, in the James Bay region. Um, so just, just, you know, my thoughts were with a lot of, you know, those people that I know. And then of course the, the families of those, those poor, um, children, innocent children, um, that were found. Adrian, what, um, what are your grandparents, what did your grandparents tell you about what went on in those residential schools? What's being talked about in Attawapiskat from by families who have a direct um, relationship with with those schools by having had family members forced to attend there? What happened in there? Well, my my grandparents didn't speak too much about this, the residential schools. I know that they were on the land um, at the time of the children, uh, like my my mom and my aunts were taken from them. Um, they really didn't have any choice in in the matter, um, and really the the there there were they were going to if they didn't cooperate um, with the mission and with the Indian agents, um, they weren't allowed to trade uh, with the trading posts. Uh, specifically, Atawapska had its own currency through the mission. Um, that you could only spend here, so you were not allowed to trade or do anything. So you were basically uh, outcasted uh, from from the rest of society at that time. So it was a very difficult uh, decision for a lot of people. And and the 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 idea of education that was presented to our people was that um, their kids were going to learn the ways of the white people, um, the ways of the Europeans, and 
I guess the way the way of uh, Western Western civilization, uh, and it was presented to them in a way that was a positive thing, right? Because the people at the time, my grandparents, they faced starvation, they faced all sorts of hardships out there, uh, and they they wanted something better for their children. And uh, I remember um, some of the the discussions that I heard um, about. The discussion, uh, the discussions that were going on in those days, um, were you know people honestly wanted their children to have a better life. So they thought that letting them go to these schools would, you know, grant them that having an education and learning these, you know, a, a better way than living off the land um, it would be a lot, a lot less uh, hard. And um, so then, uh, then, and then we, you know, when we talk about my own mom's story and the. Some of the, which I just recently learned about, um, it, it's tough to listen to that stuff. You yeah. you get angry, you know. It's, uh, it made me really angry. Your song, Survivor. Tell us what the genesis for the song was and what the message of the song is. Well, I think, <clears throat> generally speaking, uh, I think anyone that's gone through something very traumatic uh, or even you know, different hardships that we all have to go through in life. We each experience our own difficulties in in, in, in this life. Um, so I was writing about, you know, um, what I thought it would be like, uh, what I thought, I, I guess, would I try to put myself in someone's shoes who's been directly impacted by someone who's had cancer or someone who's um, who has lost someone they love through um, through death, um, so those are the kinds of places I was trying to go to when, when I wrote that song. Um, and you know, people survive all sorts of uh, tragedies, and, and um, uh, I guess, um, for example, if we look at the residential school um, impacts, um, I think Indigenous people have been surviving for such a long time you know and that's what i would describe my life as here growing up here in Anawapiskat, i feel like i've been enduring uh, life it's been really hard you know it's been tough i've been grinding and grinding and grinding mm-hmm. and there are so many other people like me so uh, i would describe myself as just surviving you know just to get by um, uh, and, and look after myself my family and as many people as i can friends uh, community members elders uh so that's that's you know my own experience i guess that's what i kind of wrote yeah. uh, where that song came from now you've talked to us about what life is like at atawapiskat and and i want to ask you what your thoughts are about uh, sir john a mcdonald and statues and acknowledgements of sir john a mcdonald uh in today's society and egerton ryerson as well there are students at ryerson university who are refusing to um, to use the name any longer some have just used an x now instead of Ryerson. But but before before I do that, uh, talk, talk to us a little bit about life in Attawapiskat. How difficult is day-to-day life in Attawapiskat? Let's start with the, just the fact of uh, how difficult it is to get the daily clean water supply that you need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, water, as you know, has been, a, has been an issue here in, in our community and a lot of other First Nation communities in this country and has been for a very long time. Um, I still collect my drinking water and jugs every day. 
Um, I sometimes collect snow, uh, water, uh, water from the river, uh, melt ice. That's something I do actually uh, quite a bit during during the winter months. Um, I really don't know what's going on with the water. Like I'm basically in the dark. Um, I know that some work has been done on the system, the current system we have, and the uh, water dispensaries where we collect our drinking water. They have been replaced. Uh, but as far as the, the main water treatment facility, that the, the water that comes from our faucets, I really don't know uh, what's going on. I mean, there's been no information uh, that we have been privy to anyway. So I'm still following the don't bathe longer than two minutes. Don't wash your food in it. Don't breathe the vapors from the faucets because that's the last information that we got. Well, it was a year and a half, about two years, going on two years now. Um, and I, I'm, I've certainly asked. So um, when we when we talk about water, and I mean that's just one of the most important things. I mean you cannot live without water. Like try try not drinking water for a day. You know at the end of the day you're going to feel pretty miserable. Um, so it's very important. You know it's uh, it's something um, I think a lot of people take for granted in this country. Um, and until you don't have access to drinking water, I think. Uh, you have no clue what it's like and how difficult it can be. Yeah. Do you have hope? And we've talked about how difficult the living conditions are in many homes in Ottawapiscot, particularly in the you know in the dead of winter when it's brutally brutally cold and the the housing is um, really substandard and it's and, and and people are allowed to live that way and forced to live that way in this country and it's terribly disturbing, but it's not something that's talked about long enough, often enough, and with enough determination in Canada. Do you have a sense that because of the recent development, the developments over the last week with the discovery of the remains of 215 children in those uh, unmarked burial sites, do you have a sense that things are going to substantially change and become better? We have the Prime Minister calling on the Pope to apologize. Um, We also have the same Prime Minister who, uh, in 2016, when protesters from uh, Gracinaro's First Nation appeared at a liberal fundraising event after having bought a ticket and and complained about and called on the prime minister to change things as far as their water supply was concerned, and their water is dangerous to their health, Trudeau's response was, thank you for your contribution. He apologized for that later. He also, um, by letter, committed to visiting Atawapiskat. Your former chief, Bruce Shishish, called this program and said that letter was written in 2016. The prime minister still hasn't arrived. So... Is it your sense that things will substantively change, or do you think that if it's left to it, left alone, that this current crisis, this current crisis of conscience, is not going to change? Well, it's 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 hard it's hard to say. You know, um, honestly, I I'm tired. Like a lot of other people are tired of talking about reconciliation and talking about the water and talking about the housing crisis, uh, the lack of infrastructure uh, that exists in these communities. Um, not a whole lot's changed in the last 20, 30 years. Like, I haven't seen anything. Like, uh, my internet is, is is crap. I mean, it goes out on and off. And I'm just tired of complaining about it because I've become so annoying, I'm sure, to the people that are in the position of authority and a position of power to improve these services. You know, like I guess I, 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 I preach bell Canada all the time. I took just like, I'm just tired, you know, like, uh, and in, in the recent events, like obviously 
we know that um, a lot of people are very upset. You know, Indigenous Canadians, non-Indigenous Canadians, I've been watching uh, um, um, a lot of the social media feeds, um, you know, it's just that's all I see now. And, and I guess I, I suppose that's a good thing because now people um, are, you know, starting to talk about these things. And it's yeah. like, I can't believe like this country that we live in um, has done such horrible things and, and these atrocities against First Nations people uh, and children, particularly. I mean, oh my goodness, like it's so you have to think, okay, is this the shift? Is this the point where we start shifting this this huge ship that we're in? Um, it's a big ship to steer, and how do we how do we start turning this around and getting it going in the right direction? Because now the, the truth is out. Because there can be no reconciliation without the truth. We know that, and there's been a lot of dead uh, dead air um, in the last several years about reconciliation. Uh, in my mind, uh, and there's like there's there's many different paths forward. I think um, we talk about culture. You know, culture matters, and how do we how do we support culture uh, in these communities, and how we how do we support because culture is, is where we're going to, to find our healing um, in revitalizing the culture and the belief systems that we've had that are still there, um, and how, how how do we start supporting us? How do we like we need help building strong institutions in these communities because we're lacking the capacity. You know, we lack the education. We lack. We just lack the, the capacity to be able to to do that work. You know, it's very technical work. Uh, strategic planning uh, and implementing these plans uh, is something we just don't know how to do um, because it's foreign to us in a lot of ways. You know, predominantly we're Cree-speaking communities in here in the far north. And a lot of our kids that go to school end up leaving and don't come back because there's no housing. The water is poisonous. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a drug epidemic. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Like, uh, we know how we need that support, you know, to be able to build up the institutions in our communities. Um, we need, uh, to foster, um, a healthy business environment for businesses. I'm a business owner. Um, here in the community, and this, uh, you know, I, I feel like it, it, there's no support, you know, from coming from the community at all. And when you're when you're trying to get outside support from banks and other under other lenders, it's it's a real challenge, you know. I mean, it's I mean, let's get real, let's get real, let's actually, you know, start sitting down. Let's all sit at the big table together and figure this out, you know. I mean, it's it's in my mind, it could be done. Um, and I'm sure in a lot of other people's minds in this country, this can this can done. The healing can start, and we have to do this together. Adrian, the issue of um, you said that you have hope moving forward. So, let's move this to the younger generation of First Nations peoples. How are they responding? What do the younger generation want? And if I asked a younger generation First Nations person, I'm asking you as well, what should happen to statues commemorating? John A. Macdonald or Egerton Ryerson, what should happen? What do you think? Well, I think everyone would agree that it doesn't matter which generation. My children um, have said that these statues should come down. Um, I believe that these statues should come down because they they <clears throat> commemorate the uh, you know an era in this country where 
indigenous peoples were were mistreated um, and, and, and very badly mistreated um, by the policies imposed by these people, uh, like Sir John A. Macdonald, who wanted to kill the Indian in us, um, by the way, who didn't succeed in doing so. Um, you know, we, we may have lost a lot of um, different parts of who we are, um, but we've been able to reclaim it through each other. Um, uh, for sure, definitely, I think these taxes should come down, and, I, and, and there should be no, no dispute about it. Um, they just are really a sore spot, I think, in, in our country's history. And what responsibility do you think the Catholic Church has? The Prime Minister has said he has asked for an apology from the Pope. What do you think? Yeah, I think an apology would probably be a, um, a, the right thing to do. Uh, you look at the, the churches in our communities here now, um, I honestly, I mean, I was raised Catholic, like uh, everybody my age, uh, my generation, we were raised Catholic. Uh, my grandparents were very spiritual. Um, my grandfather was uh, practiced traditional spirituality, but my grandmother was uh, really did, devoted her life to the, to the Roman Catholic Church. So, I mean, we had to go to church every Sunday. There was just no, there was, there was just no way around it. Um, uh, but I always had difficulty understanding why they were so devoted, you know. And, and I think it always comes back to that we were very spiritual people, um, and it, 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 you know, we we believed in Creator, we believed in God, and this this religion was put on us, um, and we had, uh, I guess, we, we were taught to not, um, you know, knock other people's religions and. So I think that's where a lot of that came from. But now when you look at the church now, like, I mean, all the churches are empty. Like nobody, No one's going to church, especially the younger generation. My generation, too, there's not very many people in the churches. So um, so there's obviously, you know, not a lot of faith in in, in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, okay. People are, people are, I, I, I know, personally, I just find it difficult to, to, to follow a religion, you know, that has caused so much harm uh, Ad- to our people. Adrian, it's it's always um, a learning experience for me when I speak with you. And I deeply appreciate you coming on the program today and spending as much time as you have with us and speak to this issue, which this country really has to learn to deal with and address and redress. Thanks again. Global news story earlier this week, sexual misconduct in Canada's military remains as rampant in 2021 as in 2015 report. I'll just read you the first few lines. Sexual misconduct in the Canadian forces remains as rampant and destructive in 2021 as it was back in 2015 when a landmark federal report first documented the extent of the problem and pressing reforms are needed now, according to a new report released Tuesday. Former Supreme Court Justice Morris Fish's independent review of the military justice system was tabled in the House of Commons on Tuesday morning. In it, Fish said his work had heard extensive evidence that confirmed the factual findings of the 2015 report by former Supreme Court Justice Marie Deschamps. 
the nature, quote, the nature, extent, and human cost of sexual misconduct in the CAF remain as debilitating, as rampant, and as destructive in 2021 as they were in 2015, Schiff wrote. Back with us is Michel Brapeau. He's a colonel in the CAF, a retired military affairs lawyer, who last time on this program told us he would not, could not, advise young women at this time to join the armed forces. Colonel Drapo, thank you very much for taking the time. After the uh, the report by uh, Mr. By Justice uh, Morris Fish, do you feel the same way still? Yes, I do, uh, and I do for a couple of reasons. I mean, in as much as I agree, and I agree totally with the report done by Justice Fish, I've contributed to it. I, I've written him twice, uh, spe- uh, met with him on a couple of occasions. All of my recommendations are, are included in the report, so difficult for me not to be uh, to be in accord. But unless we take step to ensure that his recommendations are put into effect, then we're no better off than we were last Monday. And, and just as you said, the Marie Deschamps report in 2015 made 10 recommendations. They were accepted in principle, but they were never put into into action. We have laws that have been passed by Parliament, one about victims of crimes in the military, passed in 2019, June 2019, yet to be implemented in the Defence Department. There's another act of Parliament that uh, uh, repeal a summary trials uh, because they are unconstitutional in 2019, passed by Parliament, it's now the law of the land, still have not been enact, uh, not, not been put into force in the Defense Department. So this report will go the same way as all of the other reports under this particular ministry who's been there for six years. So unless we create some form of, a, of an organization, and, and I, you know, I would recommend something like an inspector general whose purpose is to give life and to ensure that all of the recommendations Justice Fish are implemented and implemented within a, you know, a, a, a recent calendar sort of, then we will be having this discussion again in a year or so from now. Many of the, many of the people in a in, in a high office, including the defense minister and the deputy minister, they're now awaiting for Madame Justice Arbour to produce her report in 2000 in about 15 months. So we're going from a report to a report to a report, but really fundamentally no change are being made and no change are being programmed to be made also. So do you think it's possible, Colonel Drapeau, that given the fact, or at least the, the supposition, that we'll be dealing with a federal election before the end of the year, do you believe this is now the, choosing the path of least resistance? Let's not get ourselves into any potential trouble heading into an election. Let's just continue with the stacking the reports and then eventually we'll just lift up the edge of the carpet and sweep it all under. Am I being too cynical? No, I don't think you are. And regrettably, meanwhile, members of the armed forces, men and women serving the armed forces, are their morale is very low, their sense of pride, of commitment uh, into the not only the forces, but more particularly the, the leadership is not what it used to be. And that's certainly uh, of concern to everybody. Uh, people who are considering a career in the armed forces, they don't know there is a clear path ahead. There is no, at the moment, there is no chief of the defense staff. Both the former and the current are suspended. They're, you know, they're under some type of a cloud. So is a number of other senior leaders. 
And the government so far has done nothing, nothing to tell us what is being done about those particular general officers that are have had allegations made against them and whether or not they will be replaced, when they will be replaced, and what will be done to bring about some some order and discipline in the high rank of the military. So at the moment, the um, almost as if government is hoping, in fact, that the public will forget and public will get tired, will get fatigued, and will turn the page and then uh, uh, fundamentally uh, very little is expected of them. Now, I think we are into a serious problem. Justice Fish has said it. Just the size of his report, he's got over 100 recommendations. His report is 400 pages long. I mean, we know that the, the Canadian military is under deep trouble. It needs to have external uh, pressure to bring about the necessary changes. Th- this is not something they can do from without. And at the moment, this is exactly what the government is doing, leaving a defense minister who's over, basically has been there for six years, unable and unwilling to bring about a necessary change. And meanwhile, they said the men and women and those potentially who could be recruited are suffering. Yeah. Global News investigation revealed, and I'm reading from a global news story from earlier in the week, a global news investigation revealed less than a quarter of military police investigators on sexual misconduct cases are female, far less than the number in three major Canadian civilian police forces. Now, also, one in seven members of the Canadian military as a whole identified as women in 2019. In 2020, women made up just 15.8% of all regular force members and 16.6% of reservists. That's still a lot of women in the Canadian Armed Forces. They deserve to be properly protected. They deserve to be protected from sexual misconduct. And so the next question I have, Colonel Drapo, is why? Why is this going on for so long? Why is it permitted to go on so long? Is it because the very operational arm of the military is so heavily involved that they don't want the spotlight pointed at them? Why? No, I don't think we need to, we need or we should be looking to the military to fix the problem themselves. That's not their task. I don't think they're able to do, and I don't think they've got the proper leadership to do that. That's up to Parliament, so certainly political parties, but more importantly, a government. I mean, the Prime Minister is the one that appoints both the Ministry of National Defence and the Defence Minister, as well as the Governor-General. And none of them, in fact, are up to the task. None of them are doing anything to bring about the necessary corrective action. And in the meanwhile, Canada's reputation, at least the military uh, reputation abroad and in Canada, is way below what it ought to be uh, as a Canadian institution. As something, in fact, that uh, a lot of people have served in the military going back, uh, you know, a couple of wars, world wars, and so on and so forth. We deserve better and we deserve leadership, and we're not having it. Yeah. And this leadership has to flow from the prime minister down. It, it, we should not expect the current minister or the current uh, military branch to bring to bring the solution that are required. And tomorrow's the anniversary of D-Day. So, a historic day in our Canadian exactly. military. So, um, do you believe, let me just ask you one more question, do you believe that, that Minister... Harjit Sajjan, has no more credibility on this issue. I think he's lost all credibility. The last time he stood in the House, if I remember correctly, 11 successive time to apologize for having declared himself to be the architect of a battle that took place in Afghanistan. Um, you know, from that time onwards, I don't think he, 
he, he has managed to gain the respect uh, of, of Canadians as a Minister of National Defence should, and repeatedly over time, and all of the difficulties we have had uh, since then, I mean, this minister is the second longest serving minister in national defense since we've had Ministry of Defense going back over 100 years. I simply don't understand why, uh, you know, why the prime minister uh, cannot find within cabinet somebody, in fact, who has the ability, the desire and the capacity to bring about proper leadership, effective leadership and be able to to bring about the change that are required. And you don't have to, to be a genius to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can either start with the recommendations made by Madame Deschamps, that 10 of them, they're, they're easy uh, to, to understand, easier to implement if you, if you have the, the, you know, the, the capacity and the desire to do that. And, and uh, Justice Fish, 107 recommendation, you can start at number one and work your way through. But eventually, do something. And not no money. At, at the moment, Nothing has been done. The problem is getting worse by the day. We have, since the beginning of uh, COVID, been speaking with Dan Kelly, who's the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, about the, uh, the fate of small business right across Canada. And Dan joins us now on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dan, if we can start, first of all, just uh, accepting Ontario for just a moment. Can you talk to us generally about the reality for small business across Canada, and perhaps particularly in the provinces, the western provinces where we broadcast, so Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia? Well, it, it really is a mixed bag of, of what's going on across Canada, both in terms of COVID numbers, uh, the business restrictions that, that provinces have put in place, and, and also the state of the overall business economy. Some provinces uh, have, have worked really, really hard to try to keep as much of the economy open as they possibly can while combating COVID. Uh, and other provinces have been super fast to shut things down and then shut them down for, for the long term. Uh, when we look across the country, Manitoba, which is dealing with a, a you know a fairly large case volume at the moment, COVID case volume at the moment, they are in you know fairly aggressive restrictions right now. Uh, meanwhile, Saskatchewan and Alberta are in a decided, uh, decidedly in the reopening phase. Both those provinces have been and have plans for the next few weeks to pretty broadly reopen the those the two. Uh, Western Prairie provinces, economies, Alberta's and Saskatchewan's. BC, though, is a real standout. Uh, in British Columbia, NDP government, uh, at one of the most widely renowned medical offices of health in the world, they've done a great job in trying to keep BC's economy uh, much more widely open than the rest of the case. In fact, as I've, I think I've shared with you in the past, Retailers in British Columbia have not been closed for a single day during the entire pandemic. Restaurants, you can dine both indoors and on patios and have been for quite some time in British Columbia. Uh, Yes, they've used lockdowns, but they've used them very sporadically to deal with uh, extraordinary situations. They haven't thrown the economy into long-term lockdowns like we are seeing here in Ontario, where where I'm sitting right now. Yeah. When we think about... And I should back this up just a little bit. When we think about small business in this country, we should also remember what the contribution of small business is to the overall economy of this nation and the overall well-being of Canadians because small and medium-sized business in normal times employ over 8 million people 
if I have this correctly, which would make it the largest non-public sector employer group in all of Canada. If I have that correctly, Dan, what's the situation like now? How much damage is being done to our economy based on the the closures and the pain that is being uh, suffered by small business? It is enormous, uh, especially in areas that have had longer-term lockdown restrictions. I I can tell you uh, that right now, right across Canada, just over half of small businesses are even op- fully open right now. Only half. That means that close to half are either fully closed or partially closed, um, and and that's and and many have been for month on end, and and they're hanging on, Roy, by their fingernails. It's it is really dicey. Every day, every hour, I get emails from business owners who have said, you know what, I. I'm done. I I don't have. Mm. I can't borrow a single additional nickel, yeah. and and yet, yes, there are some good support programs out there: the federal wage subsidy, rent subsidy, save loan program, provincial grant programs. Our most recent research, Roy, shows that that even those that are able to use those programs, and as you well know, there are lots of businesses that have found themselves excluded from all of them. Yes, but even those that are able to use them. Only that's only covering about a third of their overall COVID-related losses. That means they're eating or attribute or contributing to to debt to pay for the the other two thirds of the uh, the losses that they've incurred since COVID began. In the more that, than that's going to take its toll. Yeah, in the more than one year, you and I have spoken on this program and quite regularly. Uh, the numbers were frightening. The numbers of potential business failures, small business failures, or expected small business failures were alarming. I had hoped things were at least improving, and and you're telling me that in some sectors in the western provinces, they are. But what about now the province of Ontario, where the day-to-day closures, the lockdown continues, and Mr. Ford seems to be looking for... He seems to be looking for consensus before he's willing to make a decision. What is the CFIB's view of the way the province of Ontario is handling the small business lockdowns? It's it's a disaster. Um, Ontario has had the worst performance of any province by a mile in terms of its dealing with COVID. Um, right now, we have you know kind of an average level of COVID infections, uh, case counts, hospitalizations here in Ontario. And yet we have the most restrictive measures, not just in Canada, not just in North America, but we believe that that Ontario's use of lockdowns means that lockdowns in areas like Toronto, like Peel, have been the longest and deepest in the entire world. That's not because COVID is more dramatic, the the effect of COVID is more dramatic. It's because of a choice that the government has made. And I got to tell you, we're not sure. We, We certainly don't believe right now that that it's lockdowns that are leading leading to the drop in case count. It it really seems to be vaccination rates that are causing the the uh, you know and the degree of seasonality mm-hmm. uh, that are leading to the, the 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 case count drop. But business owners in Ontario are absolutely at their wits' end with this government. Deeply angry at a government that purported to be supportive of small and medium sized businesses, but when when tested, were Red were very, very quick to throw small businesses under the bus uh, and have kept them locked down. I mean, Roy, right now, indoor restaurant dining in Toronto, uh, indoor restaurants, and when I tell people across the country this, they don't believe me, 
But indoor dining has been closed for over 370 days since the pandemic wow. began. Wow. You know, if you, had, if you hadn't said that, I would have guessed much shorter period of time. But, but here we are, and the reality is the reality, and it's supposed to reopen, but there's also concern about a potential fourth wave. Uh, Dan, we'll talk again, but I want to, wanted to get a sense from you about small business in the Western provinces and then in the province of Ontario. And again, small business, the number one non-public sector employer in Canada in normal times. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.